About 1,600 years ago, Augustine wrote uh, his book called Confessions. Now, when we think of confessions, sometimes we think it's going to be uh, all about sin. He meant it more like we sometimes use it in our worship as well, and that is, uh, this I believe. But within the context of the book, he told about his life, and he told about how he came to Christ, and so he did talk about some of his uh, younger life. In particular, he talked about kind of that innate struggle uh, as a, a young man that he had with sin. He tells of one incident when he was 16 years old. And he had some friends and that uh, they all hung out together. And they saw in their town this pear tree that uh, was just full of pears. But it was on what in that day they would have considered to be private property. And so uh, they all plotted together. They said, let's do what we uh, always do, and uh, during the day and into the evening, then, then after dark, we will go and we will steal the pears. And so they, they did just that. Now, he talks about that, and he, he analyzes it, looking, looking back at it, and he talks about really how he said he didn't really need any pears, in fact, he tasted maybe one of the pears, but they threw the rest of the pigs. He said, I had plenty of pears. But here's what he said. <clears throat> Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. All I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. Now this was Augustine before he came to Christ. And he goes on and talks about his struggles until ultimately he, he came to Christ. Well today in our passage, we are, we are going to, to see one who is struggling with sin and through this passage, we're going to begin to address, okay, if I'm a Christian, if my identity is not in sin, why do I still struggle with sin? What's the deal here? And so let's give our attention. We will ultimately um, go back in some earlier verses, but let's pick up with verse 15 as, as Paul talks about his, his own struggle. Romans 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. How very confusing to read, to hear it read out loud. But even more than that, to live it. And so, Lord, today, will you, from your word, will you give us perspective? Will you teach us of this? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us, we are in a study of the book of Romans. Uh, This is our 23rd message. We have just been flying through this book of Romans. But I'll just tell you that we're about to put on the brakes. Not so much today, but next week when we hit Romans 8. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time there. We're not going to rush through that. Um, and so uh, we, we've been talking about uh, the law, the purpose of the law, sin, uh, what the law does, and, and so on. And so he really picks up on that continuing theme. Remember, the, the chapters were, were put in. They're not inspired, so it's, it's one letter that it, that is going right, right through, and uh, so he says back in verse seven, "What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, or God forbid." Now let's think back to the flow of things. Uh, it's sometimes hard since we have a week between messages, and uh, it's uh, Paul had been talking about how related to the law that sin actually is. Now, he's going to continue to clarify that, but he doesn't want anyone to be confused that the law is equivalent to sin. Some people like to use that interchangeably. He's not going to allow that. It, that's not the case. They are not equal. In fact... The law is good. It reflects the perfect character of God. 
It's about the farthest thing from sin. The law isn't bad. We were bad. The law is good. So Paul goes on to talk about the value of the law in his life, and he, he emphasizes that uh, it helped him to recognize sin. Verse 7, Yet if uh, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. It's interesting that, that Paul speaks of, of coveting here because there's a lot more to the law, even if you just talk about the Ten Commandments. But uh, we've, we've defined the law as, yes, those Ten Commandments and the other ones that arise out of that. But here, even if you hone it down to the Ten Commandments, he mentions coveting. Why do you think that is? Well, imagine for the Pharisee, as he thinks through the law, it's pretty easy to tick them off if you're just looking at the outward. It's easy to say, well, I, I haven't murdered. Now, you've got to ignore what Jesus says about murder in the inward. I haven't murdered, I haven't lied, I've honored my father and my mother, and so on. And you go down one through nine, and then you get to number ten about coveting. And you're stopped in your tracks. Because you can't get around the fact that it's from the heart. That it goes to the very heart. Now that's true with all of the commandments. But coveting, especially, I think, for the Pharisee, would be impossible for them to think that they have perfectly fulfilled it. In fact, he says in verse 10, it killed him. It killed him. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, a shorter catechism, which is, we've talked about that. It's a summary of our, our doctrine and the shorter catechism are questions and answers that uh, that we can use to teach doctrine. It was specifically for children. It defines sin this way. Any want of conformity unto, by the way, this is in the outline, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So that's acknowledging it as well. It's that the law must be in place for us to identify sin. Since by its definition, Sin must be measured against a standard. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, let me tell you, um, last summer in July... Uh, we won in our neighborhood the yard of the month. That's right. We won the yard of the month in our neighborhood. And so what they do is that they come and they, they, it, it's voted on. And uh, I think everybody else had won it or something like that. And, you know, and it's voted on and then they come and they... 
they knock on your door and they say, you've won the yard of the month, and they have a sign and they put it in your front yard that says, yard of the month, and it stays there all month long. In fact, ours stayed extra long, and I was on vacation, so I had to hire somebody to mow my lawn because of <laughs> all the pressure from that. But here's the thing. After, and uh, I don't know if there's anybody from my neighborhood here, but after they, after they presented it, uh, Connie and I just looked at each other and we started laughing uh, that we had won the, the yard of the month and so on. Because I had always, well, I had said, <clears throat> I don't want to be the yard of the month. Because your neighbors hate you and they talk bad about you, and they envy you. And Connie said, why do you say that? And I said, well, that's because that's, that's how I feel when I see the... <laughs> do you get it? See, there it is. And what did that do? It exposed me, that sign. If we didn't have that contest... I could drive in my neighborhood and say, that yard looks good, and that yard looks good, and so on, and, and enjoy it, at least outwardly. But there's, there it is, and it exposed that inward. Well, that's, that's what Paul is talking about that the law does. But here's the thing. Don't get the wrong impression. The law doesn't produce sin it just exposes what's already there. Down in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? See, he's saying, so, so is the, did the law bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. So it points out sin in our life. That's what the law does. Look at verse 9 then. We, and, and what we see is Paul being awakened to sin. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, so basically, well, some commentators think at, at this point, uh, Paul is thinking back to when he went through his bar mitzvah, basically. Bar mitzvah, if you're not familiar with it, means son of the commandment. It's for a young Jewish man. When we were over in Israel, we saw a number of, of boys and their families at uh, the temple in Jerusalem, and they were going through their bar mitzvahs. It's a big deal. But what happens is that, that they uh, study the law, and they memorize parts of the law. So some think that he might be harking back to that, how when he was young Saul, that he was just kind of tripping along and everything was fine until he understood the commandment in this case, to covet. And then he was undone. 
He was uncovered because of being exposed and understanding the law. Now, let's look at what Paul experienced. Um, he, he talks about uh, his struggle. He says, and it's characterized in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, I've got to stop right here because that verse and some of this passage is sometimes used to teach a doctrine uh, called uh, the, carnal, the doctrine of the carnal Christian. And I want to say right up front that, that it's not biblical and it is, it is dangerous to souls. Here's, here's basically uh, the teaching that, that some would say there's three types of people in the world. There's the unbeliever, the non-Christian, and then, well, there's the Christian, but within Christi- being a Christian, there's like two subsets. There's the spiritual Christian, and there's the fleshly Christian or the carnal Christian. That doctrine, uh, when it's taught and when I've heard it taught, uh, it goes along these lines. That basically, someone can uh, make a profession of faith and... Uh, then they become a Christian. They might say they got saved, and it doesn't really matter what happens after that. They will go to heaven. Now, they might get in only by the skin of their teeth, but they'll still go to heaven. Now, here's the problem. Uh, let, me, let me give you kind of a, a scenario. Suppose uh, somebody is praying for their spouse who is unsaved. And they finally get them to go to church. Maybe it's an evangelistic service. And that person, maybe they walk the aisle or they raise their hand or they pray the sinner's prayer and they, uh, you know, everybody's rejoicing because as they say, they just got saved. And then that person after that night walks out of the church and never darkens the door of the church again, and never have, there's no change in their life and no fruit whatsoever. Here's why I say that's deadly to souls. Because the, the, the Bible tells us if there, if there is no fruit, then there is no faith. Now, we're never saved by works. But the Scripture is clear that if there are no works to affirm the faith, then there is no faith whatsoever. It's dead. And so, that's the danger of this carnal Christian doctrine because I'm, unfortunately, sometimes when someone does that, they say, oh yeah, my, my husband or my wife, they're, they're just a carnal Christian. But at least they're going to heaven. And they stop praying for them and evangelizing them and so on. We mustn't do that. Because that's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. So what is he saying here when he talks about the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. When he says the law is spiritual, he's meaning it's from God's Holy Spirit. But when he says, but I'm of the flesh, 
He's saying, even though I am redeemed, I'm still a creature of the flesh and influenced by it to some degree. Remember, we've talked about where does sin come from for the believer, and it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. We live in this fallen world. We live in fleshly bodies, and Satan loves to attack children of the living God. So that sets up the whole next section that some commentators have called one of the most difficult, I know I've said this like three times in in Romans, but some have called this one of the most difficult, and I will say it's one of the more controversial and even confusing sections of Romans because there there are some that will say this next section Paul had to have been looking back to his life before he was ever a Christian or he wouldn't have sinned the way he was sinning. I don't believe that's the case. And I'm going to explain to you why as we go through this. I believe this is talking about Paul as a Christian, not any kind of carnal Christian or anything like that, but it's his own experience as a Christian. And I am also convinced that it is the common experience of virtually every honest Christian. Now, when I say honest, it's the, you know, it's the experience of every Christian, just some don't want to own up to it. So let's, let's look at it with, with that in mind. Look at his struggle. And I believe the reason it's so confusing when you hear it read, and by the way, if you really want to get the full effect, read it in the King James Version. There's no way to follow it. It's impossible. But, but I kind of like doing that because my theory is this. That's perfect. If it sounds confusing, that's because when we as children of God sin, it should cause confusion and frustration and things should not be in sync at that point. And so it makes sense that this would be difficult to follow. But let's let's look at it. Uh, Verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Someone said that that goes to prove that Paul was a golfer. <laughs> and, and the fact is, that is how I play golf. The, the very thing I want to do, I can't do. And the thing I don't want to do is exactly where the ball goes. So, but, but he's saying, you know, it's way bigger than a golf score here. He's saying, that's what's happening in my life. That's the frustrating thing. Is I I know what's right, and I really want to do that, but I can't seem to do it. And, And I know that's wrong, and I really don't want to do that, but that seems to be the thing that I end up doing. Verse 16, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So there's the first place he's talking about sin 
dwelling within us. And when he says, it's sin in me, some take that to mean, well, he must be a non-Christian if he's saying it's sin in him. But rather than that conclusion, I'm convinced he is admitting his own struggle even though he is a Christian. He's saying that's, he's not blaming it. He's saying that's the explanation of why this is going on. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. This is what he's feeling. There's nothing good in me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Have you ever felt that way? Again, some think he's has to be a non-believer because he says nothing good dwells in me. I, I think he's just, he's just blurting out that which he feels when he sins. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he talks about sin dwelling in him again. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not, notice, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it. He's not saying it's not him, but he's saying that's not the real me. Remember how we've, we've talked about this? Instead of identifying ourselves as sinners and saying, yep, that's me, I'm just a sinner, of course that would happen. Instead, we should say we are children of the living God who sometimes sin. But when we sin, that's not who we are. And I believe that's exactly what he's saying here. That's against my nature. That's not me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And then, these next words are words that I believe only a Christian would utter. And, and this is, you're, you're going to begin to see why I'm convinced that he's a Christian here. He doesn't become a Christian at this point. He's, he's just getting back to that which he knows is true. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The unbeliever is not going to say that. The unbeliever can't say that. They may fear the law. They may hate the law of God. They may ignore the law of God but they will never delight in the law of God. Only the believer, only one trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life can delight in the law of God. And then he he confesses quite honestly, verse 23, but I see in my members, my hands, my feet, my mind, other things, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he 
Then he gives some summary statements. And I think verse 24 is basically the statement of a frustrated believer. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? By the way, that's another reason why I believe he is a Christian here. He is trusting in Christ. Because the unbeliever doesn't say things like that about himself. They may say, you're a wretched man. I mean, we don't use that term, but translate it into some, I don't want to make up another one, but you're a wretched man. She's wretched. Or if they, talk, if they do say, I'm a wretched man, they're reveling in it. Yeah, I'm wretched. You see? But he's looking for deliverance here. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? The unbeliever doesn't experience frustration over his wretchedness unless the Holy Spirit is working in him. That's the only reason. So how can Paul say that? I believe it's precisely because his soul is at war with itself and he is frustrated. He is grieving. There is a war going on in his soul so he honestly cries out and is driven back to his only hope and our only hope. And that's the bottom line. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the only hope. And that's why That's why Paul can love the law even though it's that very law that points out sin in his heart and in his life. But it's also that same law that shows him that he can't change himself. He's frustrated at that and it's that same law that shows him your only hope is Jesus Christ. And so he breaks into worship here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his only possible response. Thanks be to God. And then he, as if to have to say something anticlimactic, (laughs) you know, if you're ending a chapter, let's end it there, right? So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's the point. And and I am glad this part is here. Because if it wasn't, it's possible that some might have said, okay, we get to the end of chapter 7, and now he's conquered sin. Now he won't struggle anymore. But instead, right on the heels of that great doxology, thanks be to God. He says, but (laughs) I still struggle. 
The struggle with sin is not something that Paul experienced and then he got over it, never to return again. He faced it over and over and was driven to the point of knowing his own wretchedness, but being driven by that law of God back to Christ. And that must be our testimony as well. So what do we do? Jack Miller used to say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And that's it. It's as simple as I know to put it. And yet as profound as anything. Not that you get saved every day. But remember that great salvation which is yours. And preach that gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Jesus did on the cross for you every single day. Remind yourself that He walked out of the tomb and He is alive and He is at the right hand of the Father praying for you every day. And then when you do that, here's where we're going next week. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord, for that glorious doxology. Will you make it ours, coming from our lips, um, enfolding our hearts when we are at those most frustrated moments. Will you help us to preach the gospel to ourselves and to hear it again anew and afresh and seek your precious Spirit to enable us to turn from that sin. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.